So tonight we're going to be picking up our text in 1 Chronicles chapter 9. And as we come to 1 Chronicles chapter 9, of course we've seen all these names. We call it Ancestry.com, biblical style. And we, we were getting all these names because the Jews who are in captivity in Babylon have returned. It's about 530-ish B.C. They've come back from the seven years of captivity. And they're re-inhabiting their land, and they're reconnecting with their identity, their heritage, the land that was theirs, these sorts of things. And so that's our background to the book as we go forward in First Chronicles. We've cleared a lot of the names. Two weeks ago, uh, verse by verse, we had the 81-verse chapter there with all the Levites and their legacy. And tonight we're refocused on the Levites again, but in a, in a little bit of a different capacity than we did last week. So we're going to pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at the gatekeepers and the singers and their roles and their ministries, their responsibilities, and what we can learn from them for our lives personally in the name of Jesus and humanity in general, but really specifically in the name of Jesus for what it means for us going forward as the church of Jesus Christ. So verse 17, with that theme and background, we read this. And the gatekeepers of the Levites were Shalom, Akab, Talman, Ahiman, and their brethren. Shalom was the chief. Until then, they had been gatekeepers for the camps of the children of Levi at the king's gate on the east. Shalom, the son of Kor, the son of Ebisoth, the son of Korah, and his brethren were his father's house, the Korahites, were in charge of the work of the service, gatekeepers of the tabernacle. That's the central place of worship, of course, for the people of God. Their fathers had been keepers of the entrance to the camp of the Lord, and Phineas, the son of Eleazar, Phineas, of course, became a high priest as a descendant of Aaron, had been the officer over them in time past, and the Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of Meshelamiah, was keeper of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. All those chosen as gatekeepers were 212. They were recorded by their genealogies in their villages. David and Samuel, the prophet, the seer, had appointed them in this trusted office. So this is now a reference to about 400 years prior, because David is about 1000 B.C. Verse 23. So they and their children were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, the house of the tabernacle, by assignment. The gatekeepers were assigned to the four directions, the east, the west, the north, and south. And their brethren in their villages had come with them from time to time for seven days. For in this trusted office were four chief gatekeepers. They were Levites, and they had charge over the chambers and the treasuries of the house of God. And they lodged all around the house of God because they had the responsibility, and they were in charge of opening, in, opening it every morning. Now, some were in charge of the serving vessels, the implements of the sanctuary, and over the fine flour and the wine and the oil and the incense and the spices. And some of the sons of the priests made ointment of the spices. Mathathiah, the Levites, the firstborn of Shalom the Korahite, had the trusted office over the things that were baked in the pans. And some of their brethren of the sons of the Kohathites were in charge of preparing the showbread for every Sabbath. These are the singers, heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites, who lodged in the chambers and were free from other duties, for they were employed in that work day and night. These heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites were heads throughout their generations. They dwelt at Jerusalem. So this is recounting all this wonderful service and order that King David and Samuel had set up back in the day. Of course, David brought the Ark of the Covenant there to Jerusalem, and the tabernacle was there, and they made that the central place of worship. Then his son Solomon 
built the temple and that strengthened that central place of worship. So from that time forward, all the Israelites, whether they lived in the north by modern Lebanon or in the south in modern Gaza Strip, they would come three times a year for the Jewish feast. And the temple was the central place of worship where all those things took place. That God described for them back in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, of what they were to do. And so we know, remember, like he had the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the civil law for how they treated one another's neighbors, and he had the religious law for how he was worshipped and how he was approached. And the Levites were the, the one tribe of the 12 tribes in charge of serving the Lord. If you recall, the Lord said, the Levites, belong, whatever opens the womb, the firstborn is mine. And in place of the firstborn of every household being mine, the Levites will be set apart for me to serve me. And that's the way it was, the Levites. So that's the history of the Levites. And so if you're from any other tribe, you couldn't say, hey, I want to be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. I want to sing. I want to do these things. It just wasn't for you. That's just the way it was. And that's, that's fine because God has design and purpose for every one of us. And so for them, this is the way it was. Having taught this text Tuesday night and been looking at it for over a week and really focused on it since Tuesday night, I went back to Genesis chapter 2 because this is what their responsibilities were. I mean, this was the responsibilities of the Levites. We have responsibilities, so it got me thinking about just in general humanity and our responsibilities, and of course it took me back to Genesis chapter 2 because in the beginning when God made man and woman, he made them in his image, and he put them in the garden, and he gave them the task and the responsibility of tending the garden. And there in that garden, he gave them the tree of life, where they had fellowship with him, and the choice to not have fellowship with him with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, in the context of this text with responsibilities, we could say he gave them the choice to obey him and be fruitful in their work, or to not obey him and be unfruitful in their work. Like all things, it just works that way. If you make good decisions, the compound effect of good decisions will bring blessings on your life. If you make bad decisions, the compound effect of bad decisions will make bad impact on your life. And so there we find that Adam and Eve had purpose in their life, fellowship with God, and choice with God for the very best, or the choice to not go for the very best, to give their best and receive his best, or to reject it, do their own thing, and find out what death really looks like, which we all know as the descendants of Adam and Eve, we know what that looks like. We talked about this just over the last few weeks as well. But when we come to Christ, we're not just saved from our sins. We're saved for a purpose. Christ died for our sins to save us from the wrath of God and to bring us into saving favor and to take us from death to life. We pass from condemnation to justification, right? Death to life, hell to heaven, confusion to peace. All those things happen. But as my son Luke said when I was in Florida a month and a half ago, so many people come up short because they just want to be saved from their sins but not walk in what their calling is. So we're saved from this to fulfill that. And so really when we give our life to Christ, we're now entering into that workmanship. And that's why Ephesians 2 says that we're not saved by works of our own efforts. No one's going to save themselves. But we're saved by Christ through grace and faith to a work, the workmanship or the responsibility of the things God has intended for our life. We're restored. As Adam lost something, and through Christ, it's restored in the second Adam. So, too, our fullest purpose in existence doesn't even begin in life until we give our life to Christ. We become a new creation. We're born anew. And we pass from death in the first Adam to life and purpose in the second Adam. And 
Genesis 2, before their sin, reminds us. We often think of work as being punishment for sin because Genesis 3 says, hey, thorns and thistles, the ground's going to bear for you, Adam, and all your descendants. But we need to understand they had purpose and meaning and a job and responsibility before the fall. And certainly when we get to eternity, if, if the parables of Jesus teach us anything, we all have purpose and responsibility in the next dimension based upon how we're faithful with the stewardship of our lives in this one. This is all a test, all preparing us for what the glory is to come. And everything God wants to do in our life is to make us useful for what's to come in the next dimension. And that's important to keep in mind at this study with this text tonight. So again, we come back to this idea of stewardship and responsibility. The word responsibility in the New King James pops out in verse 27. We'll build our topic and application around that because we all have responsibilities. Whether we want to or not, we have responsibilities as citizens of a country, pay taxes, or receive the benefits of others who do because we can't function in society, things like that, or we're not able. But we all have responsibilities. You get in a car, you got to stop at the stop site. Stop sign, you got to stop at the red light. Like, we all have responsibilities functioning in society. Whether we like it or not, we have responsibilities. And so often when people become homeless, they become homeless because they don't want to have responsibilities. But even so, my sister being homeless for five years, I learned a lot about it. She has shared so much from that experience with me. I'll never forget when she had her grocery cart. And she's saying, life is so hard trying to live life and make things happen. I go, well, this looks harder. This grocery cart, this life you're living behind the Dempsey dumpster at the dollar store, this looks harder to me than getting up and going to work on time and doing a job. And my sister was a great employee before bad men and alcohol. Now, they had responsibilities. We have responsibilities. And even in the responsibilities, certain words jump out at us. If you start at verse 22, you, you get these phrases like, um, they were chosen, they were appointed, they were in charge, their children did it with them. They had assignment, they were assigned. They were, or they commuted. At times they had to commute to work, it says. They were, uh, and they were trusted with this thing. They, they were in charge of the, the assets and the money. The monetary wealth and the asset wealth. And they had this responsibility so this phrase, responsibility, put that over your life right now. I want you to think about your life right now, your responsibilities. Your responsibilities, because you and I are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we talk about giving an account for the Lord, and we will before the Lord, we're going to give an account for whether we're faithful or not with the stewardships entrusted to us. And stewardships, and all those parables Jesus taught on this, is just another way of saying responsibilities. It's just that stewardship is responsibilities. That's what it is. So with that in mind, we want to look at three things from this text tonight. The value of time, the value of numbers, and the value of singular focus in serving the Lord and being fruitful for the Lord and glorifying the Lord. The first one, the value of time. And we're going to look at Jesus, the apostles, in our lives as we do so. The value of time. Of all the greatest gifts we have, Time is, of course, the greatest gift. Being in ministry for 35 years, I've done so many memorials and funerals for people of all walks of life. At the end of their journey, early on, children, infants, teenagers, and and the grief and the heartache that goes with all of it. And we realize that we all get different allotments of time. And time is very special. 
And in these responsibilities that these Levites had, we see that every day, every day, todos días, every day, they had to get up at a certain time and open the house of the Lord, open the gates to the house of the Lord. Every day. It's like Norm's restaurant, right? 24-7. Every day, somebody has to be there to greet you, seat you, and serve you your food. Every day. Every day. They lived nearby, so it was a short commute. Some of them lived far away, so they'd come and stay for a week and do a, a week commute at work. And they did it every day. Every day. They had this responsibility. And you and I have responsibilities every day, by the way. And we know from the Jewish day, how they structured the Jewish day, that the Jewish day started at 6 a.m. So when it's the ninth hour and Peter's going to prayer, it's 3 in the afternoon. When Peter's on the rooftop praying at Simon the Tanner's house, it's, it's noon. It's lunchtime. 6 a.m. is when the Jewish day began. So it's reasonable to uh, consider that these guys would get up 5.30, whatever, do their deal, and off they went to work, and the gates would open at 6 a.m. because that's when the Jewish day began for the Jewish people. So they had this responsibility that revolved around time. You couldn't just say, you know, I'm just going to go to work at 6.05 today. Honey, Mahathaliel says he's going to work at 6.15. I'm going to go at 6.20. No, you serve the Lord, and you open those gates at the same time every day faithfully. And by the way, when you do the same thing, the right thing faithfully, we call that the compound effect. Small choices, the right choices, consistently made over time produce great results. This is the compound effect. God set up his universe and the children of Israel for a compound effect. Because they're required to do something every day at the same time. They needed to do it. Now, they would have a day off. Of course, God gave them the Sabbath day. So I'm sure in the rotation, every Levite worked six, one off, six, one off, that kind of a thing. For sure, he built that in for them. But it, it had to happen. And so that, that responsibility and the consistency of it. And we know in the workplace, when you're a boss and you have faithful employees that show up on time every day and they do their job properly every day, there's a consistency and there's a blessing to you and to them upon their life. And we'll go further into that shortly. So in God's universe, with the, particularly in the Old Testament with the Jewish calendar, he really set them up to be successful, to be structured and orderly with responsibilities and consistency throughout their year. Think about it. He gave them the Jewish calendar. Every year, three times a year, the entire family would go to Jerusalem and worship the Lord. He required all the men, men, you can do coffee and donuts by choice with us next Saturday, or in the Old Testament, you could show up three times a year wherever you lived. You come down from Beirut, you know, Damascus, wherever. You're coming to Jerusalem three times a year to stand before the Lord and know you're accountable on the day of the Lord and for the things you're doing between now and then. That's how it worked. He would not let men slack off and become lazy and slothful. He held them accountable three times a year to stand before him and be reminded of who he is, what he's done, what he's going to do, and what he has for them. The, 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 the feast, the three main feasts. Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles. And the last one, he said, camp out for a week just so you know you're a pilgrim too. He wanted, he, they had nice homes. And he said, I know you got nice homes up there on the Sea of Galilee, but I want you to live in a tent for a week. Just remind yourself, like Abraham, who looked for the city which had foundation, his builder and maker is God, that your real home is with me in heaven. 
So you had all those feasts. He had the year of Jubilee. No matter, no matter how much financial trouble you got yourself in, God was gracious, and in the 50th year, he'd bail you out. Isn't that nice? I mean, he'd bail you out every 50 years. And if you took advantage of people with, with finances and, and you, you, know, you, you, were, you were not a good capitalist, but a naughty capitalist, uh, you know what? God made you give it half of it back anyways in the year of Jubilee. Like, he, he had boundaries and safety nets and checks and balances where he held everyone accountable. So even the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, the seventh year of the land of the Sabbath, he gave the land a rest every seven years. He gave you a day off every seven days. See, a lot of cultures don't take a day off, particularly in the Asiatic cultures. They don't take a day off. He made sure they took one in seven off because he rested on the seventh day. Then one in seven years, the land rested. He had given enough on the sixth year to get him to the eighth year. And in the 50th year, a just forgive him because eternity is about not being filled with malice, but being forgiven and just going forward to glory. David understood the value of the day when he said the days were fashioned for us when as yet none of them were lived out in Psalm 139. He understood that the days each day. Moses in Psalm 90 said, Lord, our days will before us before your glory and your wrath. Therefore, give us a heart of wisdom and teach us to number our days. What are the days of man? 70 years by measure of strength, 80. Moses lived 120. Jacob, summarizing his days, he said, few and evil have been all my days because life is generally two steps forward and one step back. Life is usually trial, trial, crisis, trial, trial, crisis, trial, trial, crisis. So you need you and Jesus Faith, faith, overcome, faith, faith, overcome, faith, faith, overcome, faith, faith, overcome, and we overcame by our faith. That's how life works. There's no life without trials and tribulations and crisis. I'm sure you older people figured that out. Your young people just think it's going against you when you're trying to get into the right college that you want to go to. Life is trials, trials, crisis. Trials, trials, crisis. And we're more than conquerors through Christ who brings us through them. So time is a reality. Jesus, when he came on the scene and presented himself to the nation of Israel, he said, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe. The very first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe. He introduced time as he presented himself in time that it was fulfilled for them, they needed to repent and to believe. Or as he said later on, my time is not yet, but your time is always today. Remember when he said that? He said, it's not yet my time to go to the cross. That was implying. It's not yet my time, but it's always your time. Because we read later on that today is the day of salvation. It's always today with the Lord. The value of this day. And what are we guaranteed? We can't change yesterday. We're not promised tomorrow. We have today. And the greatest value we have is the asset and the wealth of today, this time, this very moment. This day is our greatest gift. And as you get older, you younger people, you realize that those days are slipping away from you. And you can't go back and redo the days you wasted. You can only focus on the days in front of you. You get really discouraged for the days you wasted. That's why Paul the Apostle told us to redeem the time for the days are evil. And he told us in Colossians, that's Ephesians, he said, redeem the time so you may know how to answer those who are not believers with the truth. So not only is, are we called as a church to redeem time in our life, but we're to redeem time to the benefit of those who don't know the Lord, according to Colossians chapter 4. See, we need to sense and value, we need to sense the value of time 
We need to be alert to time and aware of our time at all times. We don't want to waste one day. We want to be intentional with our time, faithful and consistent with our time, because body of Christ, it is without a doubt the single greatest asset we have. And I believe when I stand before the Lord, before I give an account for my marriage, my children, and all I've ever been called to do, I'm first going to give an account for how I use the time he gave me. In writing my book, I retold the story of Chris O'Rourke on the plane. Some of you have seen it in different movies. The story's been told many times. But the best surfer in California before me was Chris O'Rourke. He was two years older than me. He was my hero. And he became my rival. And right when I became the best surfer in California, beat the world champion in my first pro contest, won my first pro contest, made the finals of the Pipe Masters with Jerry Lopez on ABC World Sports at 17. Before that happened, the year before, Chris O'Rourke was the best surfer in California. And he stunned the world with his success in Australia on the Australian leg of the brand new World Surf Tour. But he came home and his girlfriend found a lump in his neck. And he had Hodgkin's disease. And I went from being number two to number one. And I went from, I went from being the California kid from Tamarack to being the California kid for the world, living my dream, making the top 16 in the world, on the cover of the surf magazines, all those things during that same four-year stretch, Chris O'Rourke was fighting for his life against Hodgkin's disease. Time after time, chemotherapy, paddling out at wind and sea, being rejoicing to be able to stand up on a wave. And before he stepped into eternity, God gave me a divine appointment with him on a flight to Australia. It was not my, I didn't even know that he was on the flight. And when I checked in at LAX, some other pro surfers were there, and he was going to Australia as an honorary judge for a contest. And he looked like death, skin and bones. Skin and bones. And by the decree of the Lord, God had me sitting next to him on a full 747 without any intention or pre-deliberate action. And for 17 hours, Chris O'Rourke, who loved Jesus, was very involved with the vineyard in La Jolla at that time. He peeled me like an onion in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he preached Christ to me. And he even made me put lotion on his dead skin. He took his shirt off, and I put lotion on his dead skin. And it was like elephant skin. I'll never forget it. God made me touch death. But not just anyone's death, my hero's death. And everyone thought he was in remission, but he told me in confidence on that flight that he was dying and the cancer was over his entire body. He put that on me. And he said, I'm ready to be with Jesus, but you're not. You think you're all that because you're the California kid. I know you, Joy Brandt. He was ready, I wasn't. And the amazing thing, he collapsed a couple days later on the scaffolding at Burley Heads during the Stubbies Pro. Same event, I lost to Shane Horan in the second round. He flew home on a light, like a life flight thing, and he died three weeks later in California. God gave me a divine appointment with a dying man. Not just any dying man, my hero and my rival, Chris O'Rourke. I cried so hard writing this story in the book, and even editing it, I, I just come to tears. Because God only gave him 21 years, and he's given me 61. I got 20 more, 40 more than he did. And I asked myself, have I lived them well? Because Chris didn't have the extra 40 I got. Have I lived my 40 years? When he shared Christ with me, have I received well what was intended by the Lord? And have I, had, do you know someone that was young that you loved and were close to and they died? And now you've lived into your 60s? I got the 40 years. He's like the guy that died in combat and I survived the battle and the war. And I've really asked myself, have I lived it well? 
Well, time will tell, but I definitely intend to live it better than I ever have before, even as I'm sure you do. Time is so precious. Time is so valuable. It's the greatest gift we have today. Use it wisely for Jesus. The second thing we see here is the value of numbers. I'm always fascinated by numbers because numbers don't lie. Numbers are science. You know, we invest in real estate. The numbers have to match up for a good investment. Numbers are important. Business models, people that work with money, numbers are obvious. You're trying to lose weight. If you're doing what you did yesterday and you weigh the same, then you've got to change your numbers, right? The scale is not, the scale is science. It's not subjective, it's objective. Your bank account, if it's accurate, is not subjective, it's objective. The numbers don't lie. Talking with Chris Gonzalez beforehand because he physically works out. He counts his reps, right? He counts what he's doing. And then we're talking about weight lift uh, bodybuilders and how they count their calories and all these things. And the, the numbers all add up. It, it, your, your screen time on your phone are numbers, and they're telling you a lot about what you're doing with your time. Screen time on TV are numbers, and they're telling you what you do about your time. You can track the numbers on anything in your life. Your, your step out. I, I'm, I'm over 10,000 every day except the two days I teach, and I try to be over 6,000. The numbers keep me healthy. They keep me accountable, and they don't lie. Numbers are numbers. They're not subjective. The universe is math, and it's absolute. So the numbers are important. It says in verse 28 that they brought out the items and they took them out by count. They were accountable for the Lord's money. They were accountable for the Lord's resources. And they had to count it out. Like, you know, 148 chairs for this fellowship hall. We need to count them out and set them up. There's seven tables. Like, the numbers matter. They matter to the Lord. They matter to Jesus. They matter to the apostles. Numbers are speaking and we need to listen to them. That's why I love that passage in Proverbs where it says this. It says... Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. See, we're, we're exhorted to be diligent and know what the numbers are. And the more accurate you are at the numbers of your life, the more it's revealing to you about your life and what you like about your life and maybe what you want to change about your life. You could notebook anything. Jennifer and I were just discussing this other night, but when we first got married, I was already doing what we called money log. I used to have the old like graph sheet, like the four square graph sheet. I've kept track of every cent I spent as long as we've been married. I haven't always liked what it says, but I've kept track of it. Pastor Chuck used to say, you can know God's will by this. Where God's guiding, he's providing. How do you know if he's providing if you don't know where it's guiding? You, you got to, you know, like when we've given away hundreds of thousands of missions in the last two years, we have to know the metrics of our numbers. We have to know our numbers. Creativity has nothing to do with numbers except how you might use them. But numbers are facts. It's science. They are what they are. You weigh what you weigh. Your steps are your steps. What you eat is what you eat. The calories are the calories. Carbohydrates are not, you know, respecters of person. Carbs are carbs, and they're equal for all of us. You might have a different metabolism, but they do what they do. And the money in your bank account with Wells Fargo or Bank of America, whatever, it, 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 schools first, it is what it is. That's the U.S. dollar, and this is what it's equal to with other currencies today, gold and anything else that you want to measure to by Bitcoin or whatever. The treasury bonds. The numbers don't lie. And it's, see, in our stewardship from the Lord, not only is time of great value to us, but the numbers are very valuable because they tell us a lot about who we are. Jesus was big on numbers. Think about this. In the Old Testament, there's a couple big numbers, 12 and 70. 
12 was the number of tribes. 70 was the Sanhedrin Council, the ruling elders over Israel. The Septuagint, the original first Greek translation of the Old Testament, Septuagint means 70. 70 scholars got together in Alexander, Egypt around 258 BC and translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek before Christ ever came. But there were 70. What did Jesus do? He picked 12 apostles. He sent out 70. Three is an important number because God's triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the mystery of it all. Did Jesus have a key three? He most certainly did, Peter, John, and James. Repeatedly in the New Testament, there are special things that were just for Peter, John, and James. They were first among equals, amongst the apostles. So important was number 12, before the day of Pentecost, Peter felt led after praying that they should appoint a 12th apostle to replace Judas, who was Matthias. That number 12 was very important to the tribes, the Old Testament, to Jesus and the apostles, and to the apostles before even the day of Pentecost. 12, ready to go. The number 12, 70, 12, 3. How about Jesus and miracles? The five loaves and the fish, right? You have exact numbers. You have five, we're told 5,000 people. That's probably approximate. But what he was working with is absolute. The fish and the loaves, exact numbers. There's an inventory from which he performed his miracle. What happens after the miracle? You know, there's 12 baskets. How many apostles are there? 12. Like, those are important numbers. There's not nine baskets or 11 or five. I mean, there's, there's this miracle. Then there's 12 baskets. And he divided up by, in groups of 50, by the way. So the numbers are there too. But he, he worked with this. So this is what he started with. And then there's 12 baskets. Like, every apostle gets to have a, a take-home gift from the party. Carry your basket and think about it. When he said to Philip, you feed them. He goes, if we had a year's wage, whatever, we couldn't feed these people. Well, here's what you got. And they learned a valuable lesson that our impossibility is God's supernatural possibility. And they each got to carry a basket around and think about it, Like, wow. Picture the kid with his lunch and, wow, there it is. Later on, when he fed the 4,000, they had seven baskets. Seven is the number of completion in the Bible, right? Seven days creation. A lot of things are seven, right? Seven years in the Sabbath rest for the land, seven day week, all that kind of stuff. Numbers matter to the Lord and numbers matter to you. I would suggest to you for your calling and the great things that God wants to do in your life, it's important to pay attention to numbers. By the way, some more on Jesus and numbers. In the Luke stretch, there's a Luke stretch of parables, like, Chapter 12 through like 19, there's some very special like parables. It's stewardship. Listen, one, the one that had five minus and got ten minus, his faithful with you, he's upgraded to more ten cities. Five minus, that's a currency base, made ten, then in the upgrade gets ten cities. Those are numbers, multiplication, it's increase. More to, to him or her who has, more will be given. Jesus taught that. Now, the parable of the unjust steward is even more amazing. So he tells the parable of the unjust steward who's in big trouble and counts receivable, and he makes the settlement. He gets to one person. He says, how much do you owe? 100. He goes, let's settle right now for 80. Okay. Another guy, the wheat. How much do you owe? 100. Let's settle for 50 right now. Gets to 50. 
So he had all of nothing is what? Nothing. If you ever dealt with creditors, they know all of nothing is nothing. When I settled my sister's debts, like thousands, over like $20,000 worth of debt, credit card debt, car debt, rent, you know, eviction debt. When I went out there to settle it all, you find pretty early on, three year, five years later, they're just happy they're going to get anything from it. And so they're happy to settle. So we settle almost like, you know, 20%, 50% on some things. And they're happy. We're happy because all of nothing is nothing, okay? So this unjust steward gets 80 from 100 and 50 from 100. He got 130 back of the 200 that was out there. And Jesus commends him. He says he's more shrewd than those of the kingdom because he had his hustle on. And he knew the numbers, and he did something. Listen, if you look at that parable, Jesus commends that unjust steward because he had his hustle on, and he says he's more, he's more fruitful than the kingdom because a lot of Christians are straight-up lazy. They're just straight-up lazy, and that's the bottom line. Numbers matter. They're speaking to us. So I'll ask you, what are they speaking to you? What are your numbers speaking to you tonight? What are your numbers speaking to you? Numbers talk. Seek, knock, and ask, and the Lord will answer, and he'll speak through numbers. Because your dream is just a wish until you're with the Lord. He puts a delight in your heart. He says, this is what I want to do. And then the creativity, the vision, but you've got to match the metrics. Your left brain is the metrics. Your right brain is the creativity. And they work together, and the mind of the Lord is over it all. How many people have failed business ventures because they didn't count the cost? Jesus said, before you go to war, figure out if you can win the war. Before you start building a house, make sure you got enough money to finish the, the job. You know, I used to go to Baja, see the incomplete houses. You're like, oh my goodness. It's like someone started a house, they couldn't finish it. Know your numbers. So WG, I ask you, body of Christ, what are your numbers tonight? You and the Lord know. What are your numbers? Because... You can criticize or you can analyze. You just, you can be critical of everybody else or you can just take responsibility for you and analyze your numbers and let God speak to you from them. I've learned more from numbers. See, about five years ago, I figured I had no plan for retirement. None. Like, Maranatha. Well, that's, you know, when you get late 50s, you're rethinking that Maranatha. Not that it's going to happen or the hope of it, but how, what, you know, like, I don't want to be a burden on my kids. You know, you know what I'm saying? Look, I researched Cryptocurrency extensively. I researched Roth IRAs, stock market from very intelligent people in this church, and I researched real estate investment. And as looking at the numbers, what I had, what I had to work with, what my interests were, I went with real estate. And I've made really good real estate decisions, but it's not been dumb luck. You know, as they say, the harder I work, the more I recognize my opportunities, the more I step out in faith, the luckier I get. We're doing it for the Lord. People do all these things for the, for the time, space, and matter, and they leave it behind. Everything, the numbers for us are for eternity. The numbers for us are for eternity. The numbers and what God wants to show you in your life is for the responsibilities entrusted to you is for eternity. It's for the kingdom. It's for glory. Know your numbers. It's like the mall. How can you get to Foot Locker if you don't know where you're at? You are here. You, you know, you're at the San Clemente Outlet Mall. You are here. Nike store's there. Like, you need to know where you're at so you can get where you're going and figure out if you have what it takes to complete the process or at least enough for the next step of faith because obviously 
We walk by faith, and sometimes you got to, hey, Pastor Chuck spent his whole life knowing numbers. He scrutinized phone bills till his, till his last few weeks of life. Pastor Chuck always knew the numbers. He knew the numbers when he was living paycheck to paycheck in his 40s in Prescott, Arizona, doing a four-square church. He never changed. He had that compound probability. Small things, the right thing, consistent things, over time, exponential growth, and by the time it's left in eternity, the Calvary Chapel movement and Jesus Revolution, the movie, right? We've all seen it. Numbers matter. Know your numbers, body of Christ. Last one, the value of singular focus. This is big. I love this one. So it says of the singers in verse 33 that they were free from other duties for they were employed in that work day and night. Now, I wish we, I'm sure I speak for many of us, we wish we could just do the one thing, right? Like if I just do one thing, like the thing I really love to do. See, that was great about being a pro surfer. It worked for a while. But eventually you don't get paid for being a pro surfer because there's better ones and they don't pay you anymore. Right? I, I, there's interviews where I go like, oh, surfing, pro surfing is like pretty much the endless no job job. <laughs> you know? Because we love to surf. Kelly Slater's been a pro surfer. I beat Kelly Slater in 1987 in a pro event in Jacksonville, Florida. 1987. He's still on tour at 51. Hey, they keep paying him to surf and he keeps surfing. We don't always get to do what we want to do, but ultimately... As we're seeking the Lord, our heart will align to him and it'll lead us to what he wants us to do and therein we find our fulfillment and we will embrace it and love to do it. Because if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll put the desire in our heart and he'll move our heart to be affectionate and drawn toward and excited with passion for those things he's created us to do. Going back to Genesis chapter 2. He'll stir us up for what our job in the garden is. And he'll make it clear. One of the great challenges we have in our modern society is all the distractions. See, the singers had singular focus. When those gatekeepers were opening the door at 6 a.m., the singers like, me, 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 me. Like, whatever singers do to warm up, right? Like, they're doing, they're doing their thing, and they're going to do it all day long. Every day in the life of the Levite singer, it was built around one thing, singing and singing really good. Know your songs, know your flow, know your range. That's all they did. And if they're really good Levite singers, what do they do? Well, they got better at it their entire life. If they're lazy, they just walk through it, you know? Sloppy sound check. Da, 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 da. You know, see, one thing that I noticed right away with Phil Wickham and Jeremy Camp when they were young is their sound checks were impeccable. Daniel, you're a witness. We watched these guys all, these guys, particularly Phil Wickham, Jeremy too, but Jeremy was only around for like one season. Phil was there for four years. And you watch him go from being 16 to 20 and how he did his sound checks and how he was and how he thought. And it's, it's who he is now at the age of 40 is not random. His skill got better and better. I, I heard a recent song. I was like, he sounds better than he ever sounded before. And if he's singing in memory care, when he's 95, he'll still sound good. You know, like, if I'm preaching to the wall, I hope I, it makes sense, you know? And I'm bringing Jesus. We want to get better with singular focus. See, I've learned this to be key. I, I've, again, on my book, I realize that one of the reasons I won the Pipe Masters is I put more into it than anyone else on planet Earth. God gave me the skill. He gave me the wisdom. But I spent so many days in huge pipeline by myself dodging 20-foot closeout sets from the Northwest, finding that one good wave from the West that came every 45 minutes. What I put in is what I got out. And like I said, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And it, it wasn't luck. You don't, you don't win the Pipe Masters by luck. You don't win a gold medal in the Olympics by luck. You don't win a world title by luck. But one event, like a gold medal in the Olympics, you don't win the Masters of Golf and get a green jacket by luck. 
Jack Nicholas, they studied his life. Jack Nicholas, the greatest golfer of all time, was within two seconds of every pre-shot. Every film they could ever find of him, his pre-shot preparation, putting, chipping, driving, was within two seconds of every shot. The, the consistency of how he prepared each shot within two seconds. I live for the Pipe Masters. Every time I lost in South Africa, I was trying like, I'm going to get it at Pipe Masters. My whole world was built toward December 7th every year. That was my whole life. All the pictures on my wall, everything. I was a California kid. I was top 10 in the world, but my world revolved around one thing. Joey Brand must win the Pipe Masters. I had singular focus. That's where I really struggled after I accomplished it because, of course, it was empty. And like, what do I do now? Because a second win won't be any different than the first win. My life is empty. But from 12 to 24, I had absolute singular focus in my purpose of life. And every time I paddled out anywhere, under any circumstance, surfing, when I got up in the dark almost every morning to go surfing, before there was surf line, all these things that go, I knew where the best ways were, it was always about that one thing. What is your one thing, body of Christ, WG? What demands from the Lord Jesus Christ your singular focus this day? Do you know what it is? Because your real value at work is not the 20 things you do, it's the three things, and most particularly the one thing. If you want to raise, don't do 20 things average. Do three things well and do one thing really well. You're not just earning a paycheck, you're paid for value. And the value is one thing above all else is what you're paid for. You young people listen to me. One thing above all else is what you're paid for. Figure out what it is and increase your value and get better at it. Dedicate your life to getting better and better and better. Everything's changing. What's the one thing? See, as I'm looking at the rest of my life, what's the one thing? It's communicating the gospel. The Joy Brand Ministry Foundation is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to financially support people who are actively engaged with fulfilling the great commission of Jesus Christ. That's the Joy Brand Ministry Foundation. That's my life from here to eternity, particularly when I move past, you know, 67-ish. That's what I'm passing on to my son-in-law, my daughter. That's my vision for everything God's done in my life. It's not about what I'm attaining. It's about what we're doing for the kingdom and how it'll go forward from when I'm gone. What's your one thing? So really important question. What's the one thing that you do really well? I'll sing about Peter the Apostle, and we'll wrap it up with him. If I ask you what is the one thing Peter the Apostle did really well, you might think, oh, let me tell you what he did really well. He prayed. He's praying in Acts 1. He's praying in, he's praying in Acts 2. He's leading them in prayer. He influenced them for prayer. When he healed the lame man in chapter 3, he was going to the hour of prayer. When he receives the vision for the Gentile nations, he's at noon in the hour of prayer, praying on the roof of Simon the Tanner. He prayed, he prayed, he prayed. When he's in prison, they're praying for him. He was a praying man, and what he did influenced everyone to pray around him. That's, he, Jesus said, if you love me, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And tend my flock. But even when they're concerned with feeding, giving food to the widows, Peter and the apostles said, we must pay attention to one thing, prayer and the word. His one thing was prayer above all else. What's our one thing with the kingdom? What's that singular vision focus God has for us? I want to be really fruitful, and I want you to be really fruitful. I want you to shine for the Lord in eternity at the highest level. I want you to get full career advancement in the kingdom when you step into eternity. I want to get it. I want to encourage you to identify what is that one thing, to sacrifice whatever you need to do to 
sanctify that one thing, to commit that one thing to Christ and let it shine for his glory for all eternity. Because that one thing is really probably the main thing that you're on planet Earth to do. So let it shine for the Lord. A is an absolute. B is I might get to it. C is I could get to it. D is delegate. E is just eliminate it. A, B, C, D, E. A B never trumps an A. Because the ineffectiveness of 80% of people that go to work is they're distracted, they don't care, and they're doing C's and D's and, and E's, and they don't even care about A and B, and they wonder why they don't get anything done effectively and efficiently at work, let alone for the kingdom of God. Know your A in Jesus' name. You got to know. We got to know. Paul said at the end of his life that his sole purpose in life, he made it his aim to preach the gospel where the gospel had never been preached. He made, see, singular focus. Paul said, of all the demands of my life, all things I do, my healing handkerchief, I get chased out of this town, I get beat up in that one. Look, my whole life is about one thing. My aim, my core value of all core values is I make it my aim to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ where he's never been preached, where no man has ever been before. See, that core value guided his every decision making in his life. So when he said, I'm letting go of this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm moving toward that, it was all based upon that core value of the one thing. See, the way, the way we waste time is distracting things come in, and we let D and C and E distract us from the thing that really matters. I don't want my last day on planet Earth to be entertained instead of just excellent. I just want my last day to be fruitful. I want to be doing my A's and moving toward my B's for the glory of the Lord. I don't be twiddling my thumbs, dumbing down myself with D's and E's and F's and anything that comes after it. And actually, nor do you. The value of time, the value of the numbers, and the value of singular focus. This is how people change the world in Jesus' name. This is how Amy Carmichael changed the world. Mother Teresa, Elizabeth Elliot, this is how it works. Or as Pastor Chuck would say, don't bring any lame offerings. Don't bring your junk to the church. Bring your best. Jesus and Luke 9 were told, he said his face like flint. For this purpose I came. He came to die on the cross. And then we're told in Luke 9, he said his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He said, the son of man must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. He must. And then he said, then we're told, is all in Luke 9, he said his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He knew, see, great teacher, Miracles, all that. And the world loves to study those things. But his name is Savior. And he came to save us from our sins. All the rest is secondary. He came to live a perfect sinless life, die on the cross for our sins, and rise from the grave for our hope and justification. And everything he did from the time he sat at his stepdad's Joseph's warehouse, watching him, or, you know, workshop, watching him build stuff, was moving toward one thing to die on that cross for our sins. From the dawn of creation and the failure of our father, Adam, our second Adam came. That was the one thing. And that's why he never shrank back, even that day. Even that cup, when he said, oh, that this cup would pass for me, but it didn't. He didn't shrink back, and he knew what was there, and he did it. So WG, I leave you with this thought. Identify, sanctify, guard, and prioritize that singular focus of what you know your life is meant to be about. Because the vast majority of people waste their lives. And a good portion of people in Jesus' name waste them as well. Redeem the time for the days are evil. 
Redeem the time so you can give those who walk outside the Lord a reason for the hope that's in us. That's what we're told to do. In Jesus' name.